This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon-Court, welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Genscript. Genscript is the leading gene, peptide, protein and antibody research partner for fundamental life science research translational biomedical research and early stage pharmaceutical development. Since their establishment in 2002, Genscript has exponentially grown to become a global leading biotech company that provides life sciences services and products to scientists in over 100 countries worldwide. During their tenure, they have built the best in-class capacity and capability for biological research services, encompassing gene synthesis and molecular biology, peptide synthesis, custom antibodies, protein expression, antibody and protein engineering, and in vitro and in vivo pharmacology, all with the goal to make research easy. Today's presentation is titled Engineering Cell Behavior with Synthetic Biology, and is being presented by Dr. Richard, Sarah Richardson, Chief Scientist from Microbiome. Dr. Richardson specializes in genome design. As a DOE CSGF fellow, she designed a synthetic yeast genome. As a distinguished postdoctoral fellow at LBNL, she integrated computational and experimental genomics. And as Chief Scientist of Microbiome, she builds genomic toolkits for non-model prokaryotes. Trained in both computational and molecular biology, she has a unique perspective on the technologies made possible by synthetic biology. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Sarah at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash webinar. So now over to you, Sarah, for the presentation. Hello and good morning or good evening or good night, depending on where you are. I was going to talk to you today about synthetic biology and I just had an interesting conversation with a colleague of mine and she pointed out that synthetic used to mean something very different than you might assume it means now. It used to mean something like skilled at putting together and it was a compliment and now it sort of means fake and it's not a compliment and that's an interesting way to think about where we're going with the science. Synthetic biology is actually an older phrase than you might think. In the 18, late, uh, uh, 19, in the early 1900s, Stéphane Leduc was very taken with these chemical gardens that you could make. You take some metal salts and you put them in a silicate, a sodium silicate broth, and they'll start to form these structures that are very, fungus-like. They look like life. It's what we call biomimetic. It is imitating life. And he really believed that this was a form of synthetic biology that was a new way to make sure you understood and had mastered the general laws governing life. He thought that if you can figure out exactly what is governing life, then there's no reason that you can't reproduce those laws and those patterns outside of living beings. And he called that synthetic biology. It was pretty quickly sort of poo-pooed 
because now we know that those chemical gardens, which are pretty fun to make and very easy to do in classrooms, it's just oxide precipitation and diffusion and other chemical laws are governing that. They're not reproducing life, it's nowhere near life. But this was, I think, the first use of the term synthetic biology. So he actually wrote a manuscript, La Biologie Synthetique, in 1912. And I've included a link to a pretty interesting book by Evelyn Fox Keller, there, where she describes that history of models being used to think about biology and where they apply and where they fall down. But I think she would say that this one sort of fell down. In the 70s, Werner Arbor, Hamilton Smith, and Daniel Nathans were awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering and applying restriction enzymes. And in the write-up about it, Sibalski and Skalka wrote that they had ushered in a new era of synthetic biology. So even in the 70s, this term was being used to describe an ability to control or engineer life. And the picture on the right is one I took from a book that was published in the early 80s, where it was striking to me as a book about lambda phage, and it just treats this sort of cloning as something so natural and they don't even describe it. They're just like, oh yeah, you use restriction enzymes. It's a thing now. It's definitely not fancy. And they were thinking of this potentially as synthetic biology, even in the 70s. So I tend to think of synthetic biology as a term in search of a discipline. If you ask physicists what it is, they will tell you they're applying engineering principles to biology. And they have these great projects like this one, which was featured at iGEM in 2004, where they've put a circuit into cells and those cells, when exposed to light, produce pigments that, and signals that diffuse and they can turn these into edge sensing Photo, photographic bacteria, and they have applied this engineering principle and they have written it out in biology. If you ask some of the chemists, they have for even longer than engineers have been thinking of biomimetics, a way to recreate biology from chemical principles. So the top picture in the middle is a picture of hookweed. These things like to grab onto animal fur as the animals walk by and be carried away. And it's a very interesting, sort of inspiration for Velcro, where the hooks grab onto soft fuzzy things and, and stay together. There's many other ways chemistry can mimic biology and they study all of them. And the molecular biologists will kind of tell you synthetic biology is not anything new. It's just a new buzzword for stuff that they've been doing for a long time. The first transgenic mice were made and never called synthetic, it was not called synthetic biology when these mice were made. And I think the molecular biologists would tell you that we're using the exact same principles, we're using the exact same tools in many cases that have not changed for years, and now we're calling them synthetic biology. So if you break these down and start to look at the kinds of projects that you're getting, uh, some of the most exciting, or at least, I. I I wanna say the things that excite the most outside interest are in the bioengineering space where they're calling it control. They want to really isolate and control 
how the cell is behaving. And then by exerting that control saying, okay, now we have the ability to build larger systems up. So they are bringing in these engineering concepts like abstraction and orthogonality. They want to bring in computer assisted design. They want memory, they want transistors. And what you have to recognize in this is that they're attempting to bring in a mode of thinking that enables them to port other forms of engineering into biology. That they understand very well how transistors work. They understand how orthogonality works. They have excellent models for how to design circuits and what the tolerances are in say electrical engineering. And they're trying a shortcut to get to bioengineering by just porting those in. And I would argue that it does not work very well. If you move over to the biomimetic chemistry and you get uh, chemical self-replication of macromolecules and uh, non-natural nucleic acids, the theories and the very broad projects of trying to change the handedness of cells to get um, nucleic acids that don't exist currently in nature to get incorporated into genomes. Th these are really interesting projects that are more in this biomimetic side of the synthetic biology. And on the molecular biology side, you have these grand organismal sort of challenges like gene drives, um, pathogen hunters, things that you would put out to look for and destroy pathogens, bioprospecting, which is an idea of going out and finding interesting genes that, that you could then hand to the bioengineers or the biomimetic chemists, or even just continue to do molecular biology on and find new things to use in new contexts. And you have the synthetic genes, which is again, um, along the lines of bioengineering, something that is so entrenched in synthetic biology, it's sometimes given as the definition, the ability to write DNA. But as I said, we've done this for a long time. We had recombinant DNA and we've had transgenic mice. So if I said to you, this novel DNA technique is roiling the field, there's a lot of press about what it means and how dangerous it is and if it's going to change our future, if we're going to write our own genomes, they get a bunch of fancy scientists together to hash out how is this going to look? How are we going to be ethical about it? Is this change everything? Are we now, have we gone too far? Do Have we given ourselves the ability to play God? And I asked you what year it was, you might be forgiven for thinking it was 1975. Because when restriction enzymes were discovered, it really worried people. And when CRISPR was discovered, it really worried people. I don't think there's a reason to worry, but I think it's important to note that both of these can be considered synthetic biology. They are both tools that were borrowed from bacteria by a careful observation and then applied to changing the way we do molecular biology. And they both have limitations and they both have uh, upsides, but essentially what they are are tools. They don't define the field and they are enabled by basic science research to do more basic science research. It's very important that we keep them in place and don't think of them as the end of life as we know it. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a lot of excitement and sometimes really, this is a really poorly considered article, I would say. Uh, he is talking about creating a new kind of bacterial life. That is not what he is doing. It's, uh, he was able to clone a gene into E. coli, which is super cool. And I don't wish to dampen anyone's enthusiasm for the ability to put DNA into cells. That is the basis of our communication with them. It's amazing. 
calling them new kinds of life and playing God is a sort of excitement feeding for synthetic biology that might actually do us damage in the long term. Uh, and when you build excitement like this, you get these big public failures of synthetic biology in the public space. This Kickstarter for four years was promising to bring glowing plants to the public and the public was super enthusiastic and excited, which I think is actually a feat that enough people were not upset about the idea of glowing plants, but instead enthusiastic about it. I think that's a win for science and tech, but they did not deliver, which is a loss for science and tech. Uh, synthetic biology is hard. It's hard to do. We still have not commoditized it to the point where you can have Kickstarters like this. There's also the idea that I think we might be rebranding some of molecular biology as a synthetic biology for consumption by people who think that they're doing something maybe newer than this is an example by a group I'm not calling out. This is a super cool class for people to come and learn how to do molecular biology. Every single skill that you would learn in this class though is not exactly synthetic biology. It's basic molecular biology has to be assembled into new ways to be synthetic biology. But this is an example of the sort of hype that we're getting into about how easy it's going to be to just write DNA and get an organism to take that DNA as instruction and woo, now we're in a new era of having these cells do whatever we want to do. It has been very, very, very difficult to get these cells to actually do that. So what do you need to know as someone who wants to be a synthetic biologist and study synthetic biology and be successful at it, whether it's bioengineering, biomimetic chemistry, or molecular biology. You might have heard that the cell is like a computer, that they use DNA as a programming language, that you can look in their genome and isolate parts, and those parts you might start to think of as something you use to construct new systems, sort of like Legos or any other sort of electrical engineering analogy and that we can now encapsulate and standardize and program these things. And I want the first thing that you do to be to erase that from your mind. It is a useful abstraction perhaps for thinking about how a cell works, but it almost immediately breaks down when the cell actually starts to work. DNA is not a programming language and cells are not computers the way we think of computers. And the very first rebuttal, the way to knock this from your mind is to remember that your MacBook does not make imperfect copies of itself. Cells make imperfect copies of themselves. Anytime you've built a machine and you add more tasks for it to do in the way that synthetic biology does, when you say, okay, you're a machine that's doing things, but I also want you to do this task. Your car, when you add a new radio to it, does not go, wow, that radio is cool and everything, but it costs me extra energy to run the radio. So when I make my car babies, any of the car babies that that radio accidentally gets broken in, well, they might grow faster and have new car babies. And then, you know, three or four generations later, there's no cars left with that radio you put in. And this is the reality for engineering cell behavior. If you give it a chance to have a a mutation that favors not doing what you asked it to do and still surviving, that's what's going to happen. Cells are complex machines that make imperfect copies of themselves. And so you cannot program them like electrical circuits or not breadboards. 
you might have heard about chassis. Uh, chassis is a simple framework that you build more specialized designs on. So cars are pretty much one design. You have four wheels, sometimes more, but you can add those wheels onto the chassis and you have a suspension, you have a transmission, and then you can sort of specialize on top of that how much storage space you need, how much passenger space you need. This is a great abstraction, again, for things that don't make copies of themselves. And the way the synthetic biologists use it is they tend to think of cells as chassis for production that you will just put in some modules, you'll put in some other modules, They'll all fit into the cell and then the cell will be a little machine that does exactly what you've asked it to do. That is, their cells are not chassis. Cells are complex machines that make imperfect copies of themselves. They, it can almost feel like they have an agenda. It's really not an agenda. It's a, it's a specific mechanism, right? Selection and making an imperfect copy of yourself that results in it looking like the cell does not care what you asked it to do and what the metaphors that i want you to sort of not use for synthetic biology do is lead you to make logical failures so say you want to make one for butane dial and you have really great motivations for doing that because petrochemicals are not sustainable and you start to look around for which cells you could make one for butane dial in, and you naturally land on E. coli and Saccharomyces cerevisiae because these are very broadly used, they're very well understood, and they're almost too eager to take up DNA from us. You offer a plasmid to one of these guys and they go, no problem, boss, we can totally do that. But then you ask them to make one for butane dial and they just can't. They're just very bad at it. They have other things to do and you have not properly motivated them. What is their win for making 1,4-butane dial? This is not uh, abstract. Saccharopelis erythria makes erythromycin. Neither E. coli nor Saccharomyces cerevisiae have ever been able to make erythromycin anywhere near titers um, challenge it. Coronabacteria glutamicum is great for producing many of the amino acids that are necessary in industrial feed production. It's not done in E. coli or Saccharomyces cerevisiae. They're not the right cells for it. Xanthomonas campestris is the sole source for all the xanthan gum in the world. That is not a task that you can motivate E. coli or Saccharomyces cerevisiae to do. Actina bacillus succinogenis and fibrobacter succinogenis. Some of these bacteria are very good at making succinic acid a platform chemical that's usually derived from petrochemicals, E. coli and Saccharomyces cerevisiae cannot match the titers naturally and engineering them to make more of it has been difficult. This is an example of something the bacteria does that is so intrinsic to its context and setup, you cannot currently get E. coli or Saccharomyces cerevisiae to make a nanostructured S layer. It's made from a single protein that the bacteria exudes and then links uh, with sugars to its outer section. It's a really cool bacteria, E. coli and Saccharomyces cerevisiae can't do it. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. This bacteria makes magnets. It makes magnets, it's amazing. It uses the magnets to align itself to the Earth's um, magnetic field so it knows which way is up and which way is down so it can move around so it can change its oxygen concentration. 
it, they just can't. What I think of when you're thinking of a cell as a chassis or something that can be programmed and the genes is something that can program them, you're prone to mistakes that look like this. I see a cow, it's in a field, it's eating grass and making milk, and that is a great function. I want that in my backyard. I want that in my backyard, but I'm scared of the horns. And I already have a dog, and the dog and the cow are both animals, so can I get the dog to eat grass and make milk? And that actually doesn't seem the craziest because dogs and cows are both mammals, so technically you could get milk from a dog. But the cow over there is a lot better set up and more motivated to eat grass than your dog is motivated to eat grass. And you have to ask yourself, how much synthetic biology am I willing to do to turn a dog into a cow? There's also this uh, idea that bacteria are very simple. So we should be able to engineer them this way, that synthetic biology is the natural result of our exerting control over cells because we understand them so well. And I really hate this picture. I hate this picture because it puts bacteria at the bottom and makes them appear old and puts man at the top as though we are the pinnacle of all evolution. We are just as old as bacteria. Bacteria are just as new and evolved as us. We have just picked different routes to specialize in. It's it's going to be a problem if you're thinking of cells, particularly bacteria, something that's going to be very easy for you to engineer because we're just so awesome. This is a better representation, and at least it doesn't have a top and a bottom, but still, everything to the right of uh, fungi, maybe, these are all things you can see with your eyes. Bacteria and archaea are sort of squeezed in the bottom as though they don't have potentially a biomass equal to all the plants on the planet, as though they don't run this planet. I think that synthetic biologists need to remember a couple things. One of which is that synthetic biology is a buzzword. At best, it's a new name for an evolving set of tools, but it's not a field. The fields that are indulging in synthetic biology are computer science, molecular biology, microbiology, plant biology, chemistry and chemical engineering, and others that I have um, awfully forgot to name here, but these are the fields, and I think that synthetic biologists should really get an excellent grounding in one of these and not seek to be synthetic biologists, but seek to be a chemist, seek to be a chemical engineer, seek to be a molecular biologist. And two, I would say they should develop a feeling for the organism. Do not approach a cell as though it's just going to take your DNA programming and act for you like a little nanomachine or a computer. This is Barbara McClintock. Again, there's an excellent biography of her by Evelyn Fox Keller. She said she had a feeling for the organism, and I believe her because she figured out that transposons were a thing in corn before we had high seeks. She couldn't look at the DNA. She understood how her organism was working, and she understood how to motivate it. You have to have a feeling for the organism, which I know sounds unscientific, but really is a stand-in for understanding what motivates it and how you can motivate it to do what you want it to do. That also means picking the right animal for the job. If you want something that eats grass, you might want to start with a goat. You are not going to have an easy time motivating a dog to eat enough grass to do the job you wanted the grass to get done in its metabolism if you have to convince it that grass is tastier than kibble. That's just, it's just a very steep hill to climb. And I would finally say, don't let synthetic biology metaphors mislead you. Do not let this computer analogy make you think that you can waltz in here and, and do this. 
there's Alan Perlis was a very famous computer scientist and he has a set of epigrams that are amazing. They're great for computer scientists, but they're just in general, very, very good. And one of my favorites is fools ignore complexity, pragmatists suffer it, some can avoid it and geniuses remove it. And I, I like to think I'm at the pragmatist bit. I realize how complex some of these cells are and I'm, oh no, what are we gonna do? But I encourage everyone not to ignore how complex they are in an attempt to engineer them with synthetic biology and to run into these walls where because you've ignored the complexity, you can't appreciate enough to either begin to avoid it or to remove it. But I wanna end on a happy note. We have been synthetic biologists for a long time. All of these, every single picture on this slide is an example of when we as humans use technology even if at the time we began, we didn't understand how we were doing it to make our lives better and to make products, to make technology that is now so understood to be given that we don't even get credit for it being bioengineering or synthetic biology. MSG is all made in bacteria. Xanthan gum is all made in bacteria. Cheese is made by bacteria and fungus. And we've domesticated these things. We have engineered them to do a great job for us. We motivated them to stick with us, to feed us properly, to be our buddies. Um, all of the domestic animals that our children are so proud to know what sounds they make. We did that and we can continue to do that. We're only getting better and synthetic biology should be viewed as a tool for similarly motivating excellent organisms to do excellent things for the purposes of improving mankind. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to a word from our sponsors. Thank you, Sarah, for that uh, great presentation. Um, and thanks everybody for coming and attending this webinar. Um, I just wanted to give a quick couple words about GenScript, the, um, the sponsor for this uh, webinar. Um, as some of you may know, um, uh, here at GenScript, we've become a leading biology CRO, as Karen had mentioned in the beginning of the webinar. Um, we, uh, one of the proud points of our company is that we actually have a highly technical staff here. Um, so scientists with either PhD or MS are always handling your orders and your quotation requests. And um, our, our company itself is growing exponentially um, year, year over year. Um, we have a state-of-the-art state facility both here in New Jersey and over in Nanjing, China. Um, and we've actually been peer reviewed, been in peer review papers um, in over 11,000 that cite our services and products as helping um, researchers accomplish their goals. And we also have a global operation. We're currently um, involved in projects in over 86 uh, different countries. Thank you, Sarah. That was an excellent presentation. Uh, we now have a few questions from the audience. So the first question that we have is from Ashka Shaheen, and this is, how do you differentiate synthetic biology from biotechnology? I would like to think, I've at times been reluctant to identify myself as a synthetic biologist and preferred to use a biotechnologist or bioengineer as my title. I would say that synthetic biology is a tool that we use to accomplish biotechnology, I think would be the best way to do it, it given that understanding that we've made a lot of biotech products that no one tagged with the term synthetic biology that might actually fit in that umbrella. So I would like to think of biotech as a bigger umbrella under which synthetic biology sits. Okay, thank you. If anyone else has a question at this point, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. I have another question in from Sri Harshra. 
And this is what are turbo cells? Turbo cells? I'm afraid I'm not familiar with that at all. I'm sorry. Okay, so perhaps, perhaps the, um, yeah, okay, never mind. Um, it, there may have been a misunderstanding during the presentation. Um, then I have a couple of more questions from you. So how would you say that CRISPR has changed synthetic biology? Oh, that's an interesting question. CRISPR definitely brought in so much more attention to the potential of engineering cells. Um, it's actually a very, very new and amazing tool for eukaryotic cell editing. In my little neck of the woods where I'm more concerned with prokaryotic bacterial cell editing, it hasn't made as much of a dent, but for mice and anything fancier than mice, it is very, very, very exciting to be able to exert more control over the DNA in situ in those organisms. I think it's done the same thing that happened in the 70s where restriction enzymes were suddenly let us have a conversation about what we want out of biotechnology, what we expect to get out of biotechnology um, and biotechnologists in terms of ethics and how we communicate. I think that's probably one of the best things CRISPR has done for us is had us all come and start to have conversations about yeah. what it means to have this technology in our society and who has access to it and, and how we will regulate it. But as a, synthetic biology goes forward with or without CRISPR, it's really, I think, practically just another tool in our toolkit. Great, thanks for that. Um, then I have another question for you. Um, why is it so difficult to do synthetic biology in do-it-yourself labs? In do-it-yourself labs, uh, they get a lot of traffic from people who are super excited to come and do biology. And particularly, I see a lot of people who go, well, you know, I hated biology in high school or college. I just never understood it. But now that you guys have made it like engineering and, you know, me as an analytical person, I can come and understand that. And like I said, that is sort of uh, trying to go around the problem of understanding or acknowledging the complexity of bioengineering. So they come in and they can clone a glow-in-the-dark gene into E. coli, which is super cool and super fun. And any of you who haven't actually done DNA cloning into cells and grown cells, I encourage you to go do this. And DIY labs are great, and you should go support them and, and try this. It's a great way to do science outreach and education in the community and start getting them in. But after you've cloned in a GFP gene and gotten your glow-in-the-dark bacteria, what are you going to do next? And this is where some of the complexity comes in. What can you do next? It's starting to be difficult to build more than an excitement for learning more. You can't necessarily do as much in some of those labs without a lot more background and a lot more experience and respect for the complexity of the system you're trying to engineer. And yeah. uh, that, that I think that would be my answer. But I, I totally support the DIY labs as, as uh, places where the community and scientists come together and do a lot of interaction and education, and they're really great. But it is difficult to drive innovation solely from those labs. We all have to come together and, and work on that. Thank you. That was a good answer. Um, I have a question from Tuan Lin Tan. It's a bit of a long question, but you talked a lot about motivating cells in your presentation. And um, as molecular biologists, we are often programming cells, just making them work. We're not thinking about how we can motivate them. Um, and this is an interesting aspect. Can you give some examples as to how one might motivate cells like E. coli to do the things that we want them to do? 
Well, one, I would say that uh, you've got to think about what keeps a cell wanting to maintain the purity of your the DNA construct you've asked for it. That if you don't have a, if your only option is you do this or you die, that's a really easy one for them to get around. If the media is still like, well, you know, I can stop doing that and there's still plenty of food to eat. You haven't really motivated them. You've just threatened them with a stick and they'd much rather have a carrot. If you can set up your selections and your processes so when they do what you want them to do, they're keeping an advantage over any lazy cells that have decided to stop doing what you're doing. Uh, I would, this is blue sky. I've never done this, but as say, as a thought experiment, um, you're trying to make an antibiotic and normally you grow your cells all by themselves and you've asked them to make this antibiotic and it's a hard process for them to do. It takes a lot of energy. You put in the construct, they're making the antibiotic, but they grow slower and they're less happy. And so it's so much easier for them to not make that antibiotic for you, right? How do you motivate them to do it? you make it a selective advantage if they make the antibiotic. Maybe you introduce some pressure. (laughs) You introduce a competitor that's susceptible to the antibiotic. And then any cell that is still making the antibiotic might have more motivation to keep doing it, even though it makes them grow slower and it takes more time, because the ones that stop doing it get outcompeted by the enemy cell that otherwise would have been susceptible to it. This might be hard to do in practice. I'm not advocating this as the way to make antibiotics, but this is the way I'd like to think about how to get cells. I want to think from their perspective down, think like a cell. Why am I doing this? And is it really going to make my subsequent generations better selected for? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Thank you. Um, I have another question here from Alexander. Um, so it's there's two parts. The question he first asked, is lab automation already a big issue and how can this or how does this influence the daily work in a synthetic biology lab? Uh, lab automation is amazing. Uh, if I, I love some of the robots I have access to. They're, <laughs> they're just so great. It does let you question more hypotheses in less time. So that also, I think, will help synthetic biology. When it was very hard to make a single construct or to test a single hypothesis, you tend to put a lot of time in the design and worry so much about the cell executing exactly the design you asked for. When you can leverage automation and high throughput, you can relax on some of the design constraints where you're like, it has to work like this. Test more of the hypotheses and sort of let the cells pick which way works best for them and have less top-down micromanagement control and more sort of the kind of boss that's like, this needs to get done, but I'm going to let you decide the best way to do it. And I think automation enables that, which is a much easier way to to work with cells. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, We have another question in from Manuel. Um, Do you think DIY biospaces represent a risk in biosecurity or is it dangerous in any other way? I don't think they're dangerous. I think it's a great place for a community to go and actually convince themselves of biotechnology's purpose and um, and the shape of the solutions you can make with it. I do not think there's any DIY spice anywhere where people are going to make uh, dangerous agents or pathogens. It's just, it's not happening. I think also it is very, very difficult even for people in a really well-funded lab to make dangerous things. How do you motivate a cell to be dangerous to other cells? It's a, it's a difficult engineering prospect. 
I don't think DIY labs are dangerous at all. I think it's actually a good place to go to figure out how hard it is to be dangerous with biology. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, a question here from Natine Campbell. Um, so this is again kind of a classification about the field question. How does genetic engineering and automated sequence analysis relate to the field of synthetic biology? So genetic engineering might be another term for some of the stuff we do with synthetic biology yeah. and again fit under that umbrella of biotech. So these are all acronyms and other ways to sometimes for people to say I do synthetic biology without having the use of phrase synthetic biology. Automated sequence analysis is a tool that all biotechnologists use to check to see what the DNA is doing in a cell that you've asked to do one thing because like I said you put the DNA in, you check the behavior, and then you check the DNA, and it maybe has changed. So being able to quickly do that and to understand the difference between the design as you made it and the design as it's being run, that's a that's a really important tool. Yeah, great. Uh, another question from Manuel. He has a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> I think this is kind of a personal question for you. It's like an opinion question. Do you think biotechnology should focus more on improving native organisms rather than using model organisms? Well, I, I'm biased. That is yeah, what I I guess. I'm trying to do as a business. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, would that be the view sort of of synthetic biologists on the whole, I guess? Um, again, I'm biased. So please, I encourage everyone to have a good scientific mindset and research this <laughs> yourself and ask other people. I think that leveraging the skills that native organisms already bring to the genetic pool in order to enhance or domesticate or specialize those is a, an attractive proposition as opposed to trying to take genes from them or behaviors from them and get more tract currently tractable organisms like E. coli and yeast to replicate those feats. I do think that there's room for people to go in both directions. I would mm -hmm. never call for anyone else to end any of their research efforts, but I am, yes, mm -hmm. I am walking down the let's domesticate native organisms. Let's get better at working with things that we have not been so great at working with. But uh, there's room for many interpretations, many paths, thank goodness. And I think if you ask a bunch of other synthetic biologists, and I have, some of them are very optimistic that we will be able to do almost anything in some of the current chassis that we have. And I respect that view. Okay, thank you. Um, I have a question from Nicolas Dufour. Um, do you think that directed evolution should or would be a good way to motivate organisms to produce wanted products? That directed evolution is a good way to which? To motivate organisms to produce wanted products. So I guess to motivate an organism to produce what you want it to produce. So I think uh, directed evolution to me is a somewhat fuzzy term. I'm not exactly sure of which technologies or methods it would refer okay. to. If you're, if you're saying that um, you have an organism and it's making something, but you would like it to make more and you're selecting the ones that make more than yes this is an old technique that has been used in almost every modern producer to get it to maximize its potential and one thing synthetic biology is attempting to do is to add new tools to the toolkit so that directed evolution can become more efficient or that you can add information to a system you know add a gene that the cell can play on like a a few, you know, sort of start to do jazz soloing when you can add genes to it to see if it can use that to improve its process. Yeah. Okay, great. 
And I think we have two more questions uh, for now. Um, so you said a lot about the things that synthetic biology had been called in the past. What do you think it's likely to be called next? Oh, I think it's going to go to biotechnology, actually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, I think that uh, so a lot of it is press. It doesn't take a lot to make a term sort of no good anymore in the press. Yeah. I think we have had a lot of hope for synthetic biology and we've had some failures that were pretty public. And um, I think we're going to keep doing the science because we're all hardworking and we all believe in the future of bioengineering and synthetic biology, but we might just move on to something that has not had some public failures associated with it. And I think biotech is a pretty good term that's going yeah. to be hard hard to hurt, especially because you can point to, I love to point to things like chickens and dogs and say that's biotechnology at work. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, we have a few extra questions now. Um, what do you think is the next big breakthrough in synthetic biology? And this is coming from Asken. Oh, that's such a hard one. Uh, it, it, if you're asking me to prognosticate the future, I would have to be a good scientist <laughs> and say, I can't well, see it. Well, do you have any feeling maybe from conferences or within the field where the next kind of, what the big milestone is likely to be? Sometimes people have a feeling it's, I don't know, maybe you don't. <laughs> I I love going to conferences. Maybe and you can't say. That's not yeah, I'm, I'm I get excited about every bit of research. Honestly, they're all they're all really cool. It's hard to tell how how to build on almost anything. Um, yeah, uh, but I am a big fan of some observation stuff and building infrastructure. And this might be my experience at a national laboratory or my own inclination as an engineer. But my yeah. favorite advances are toolkits, things like CRISPR, where you have now made a tool that can be used to reinvigorate almost any line of research. So any particular line of research I think is super cool, but tools that can be used to activate other toolkits, databases, sets of observations, and large pieces of data that can then be used to do machine learning and modeling, these are the ones I'm super excited by. I love to see a group put out a tool that can be generalized to other groups and can be used and supported by a large community. And I think that's the future, not just of biotechnology, but of science, where we really do a great job of making sure that no one behind us has to work as hard as we did to get to where we are. Yeah. Okay. That's very good. Um, I have a question from Ernst. Um, how can the synthesis of entire genomes be used to uh, simplify the task of motivating motivating cells to do what you want? Well, I have to be careful with this answer. So <laughs> I, I participated in the um, project to synthesize an entire genome for yeast. And mm. we're still working on it, still <laughs> trying to get the whole genome synthesized. But uh, as you can tell, that's not the kind of work I do anymore. So I'm not sure that it can, I, I think it will be an interesting question when you have completely created a genome from scratch, but you haven't, if you haven't totally altered 
the way that organism works, will you still be able to motivate it to do things that are very outside its brief? Mm. So I, I wonder about that. And there's also the, the interesting technical footnote for synthetic chromosomes and genomes that mm. a cell is two things. It's information and memory. Some of the mm. processes a cell carries on are sort of epigenetic. If it has internal membranes, those yeah. are not being carried forward in its DNA. So when you reboot these chromosomes and genomes right now, our current technology does not allow us to boot them in empty membranes. And mm. so there's a certain element of the cell's behavior that you cannot access that way. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it may not be that simple after all. <laughs> it may not be that simple after all, but it's a, no. it's a great technical effort that brings together a lot of people to question how should a genome look? What are the, the technical, the synthesis skills we need, the computational skills we need to do? How do we organize a big group to motivate them to do this? And how, what changes do you want to make and why? And can you test hypotheses when you do this? I, Want, which re I don't think it's a waste of time, but I do think it's somewhat limited in the idea. If you're coming at it with the idea that now that you've rewritten its genome, you have complete control and it can do anything for you, you have not yeah. actually you have not actually hit that bar. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of very interesting questions. Um, probably can't take all of them, but we do have another question from Manuel. Um, do you think that metabolic models can help us to define the metabolic capabilities of a cell in order to help us to decide whether or not it would be a good organism to produce something? I or think not? that's <laughs> absolutely important. I think that knowing the ranges and tolerances of a cell and where you start with it, where it starts. Because when I say to pick an organism that is easier to motivate, that motive, knowing which ones are easy to motivate is in part knowing what they do and what they're capable of already. So you know how far up that energy hill you are to where you mm -hmm. want to be. So you can start further up instead of at the bottom. So yes, metabolic modeling and uh, phenotype detection. What is the cell doing at which temperatures on which carbon sources. This is all important data to have when you're, yes, picking an organism to begin to motivate. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, I think I will finish up on this question. Um, why haven't biofuels taken off? I think biofuels have had a hard time competing with petrochemicals at the petrochemical price point. It's a, uh, mm -hmm. The engineering effort takes a lot of money right now, and when you still have to guess what the price of oil will be, and, and the history has not shown that it will come down to where biomass is competitive, that's just a very difficult <laughs> argument to make for investors. That yeah, it's it's just been very difficult, and I hope the whole field keeps plugging away at it and keeps making new tools like CRISPR that will make every aspect of it easier to approach yeah. and that will come around to the uh, inevitability of needing to replace petrochemicals as a fuel source one way or the other. It might not yeah. be biofuels, but I hope that we all keep plugging away at the problem from all directions. Yeah, they won't last forever. Okay, I think that pretty much sums up the question and answer session, uh, which means that we are now at the end of the seminar. So thanks again, Sarah, for a very illuminating presentation and a really active discussion. 
Thanks also to our sponsor, GenScript. And finally, thanks to all of you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bitesize Bio Webinar Festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at GenScript and Bitesize Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.